Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Praise the Lord. He's given us a new day, and that means there's a lot he has for us. For the sun doesn't rise and the moon doesn't set without God having a plan and purpose in each and every one of our lives. Amen? Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to finish off the chapter today, uh, right around verse 8. 18. I had a moment there. I did what verse? <laughs> verse 18. Uh, remember, Paul, through love and exhortation, um, is dealing with a troubled church. I mean, he's dealing at a church in Corinth that is struggling, a lot of division, a lot of divisive issues. Um, you know, it, it'd be uh, wrong to say that churches won't face these kind of issues time. You know, maybe not specific issues that we find directly in Corinth here, but there's just so much going on today and so much going on in the church. Um, we just pray for, you know, I don't know about you, but I've been praying, God, just refine the bride. Just refine the bride of Christ. You know what I mean? Just do a work in us. We want revival, but it begins in our hearts. Just do a work. And, and as I was praying and I was seeking the Lord on this, you know, Paul could have gone anywhere at this point. I mean, he could have immediately said, hey, you're all being a bunch of knuckleheads, right? I mean, that, that, that's the way I would have handled it. I'd have blew it. I'd have messed it up real bad. You know, he didn't. He reminded them that it's all about identity. Who are you in Christ? You see, that's the whole point. It's Jesus. You know, the first 10 verses we read over 11 times, we see Jesus Christ. And he was reminding them that the antidote to all their problems, all their division, all their divisiveness, the tearing as we see the word in the Greek, has everything to do with taking our eyes off of Jesus and not having him be the centrality of the gospel, centrality in our hearts too. As he goes through and he looks at these things, he's very clear and deliberate to point them back to Jesus. And again, we'd be foolish to think as a church that we would never have things happen in our flock in the in the, the church Jesus Christ's church here right but we have a part in that don't we he's given us hearts he's given us minds he's given us the capability to pray what's the intent of our hearts do we desire unity do we desire Christ and Christ crucified is that the only gospel that's preached from the pulpit you know is that the only thing preached from the seats in front of you or in the seat you're in you see I think that when I read this that's everything, you know? But to the unbeliever, the cross, that's foolishness. Think about that for a minute. To an unbeliever, to someone, God of the universe, right? All-powerful God, right? He would send his only begotten son to come down personally to live a life very humble, very meager, very, very meager, to dwell amongst his creation, to then turn around and as a slave go to the cross to pay a sin debt, which he was without sin. You see, to any person that would use logic, if I can say it that way, or humanism, you know, the intellectualism, they would look at that as an offense. Like, why would an all-powerful God do something like that? You see, Paul begins by reminding them who Jesus is. And the character of God is unchanging. He's the ancient of days. And the centrality of the gospel, he explains in such a simple, beautiful way. He says, yes, that, that is contrary to your wisdom. And that's deliberate. 
He tells us that's deliberate to man's humanity's wisdom. And he says the reason for that is so simple. It's so beautiful. It's love. It's a love that we wouldn't understand if he didn't first love us. We wouldn't even know how to love him. That's what he said. That's the gospel. That's how Paul begins. That's how he deals with issues in the church. That's how he deals with everything. For without love, you have nothing. I like that. Amen? Where can we go from from here, right? Man, all right, let's pray. Father, Lord, I feel we could could turn around and go home right now, Lord. You just just gave us, you just wrecked my heart uh, and all our hearts here this morning. We just... We get it right in you. The centrality of the gospel is you, Jesus. The central point is you. It's your cross. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave it up to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved us first. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to show us and demonstrate what real love and true love looks like. Thank you that you are just glorious and precious. And we love you and we will always love you and we will always serve you and we will always worship you. You are everything to us. And thank you for your word that we can, we can just fall in and just melt right now as your word goes forward and it transforms our heart and does a miraculous work. Thank you that you are the king of kings. Thank you that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you that, Lord, you'll go after the one and leave the 99. Thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you'll finish the work you began. Thank you that you've given each and every one of us a purpose on this earth. That even in our lives, we demonstrate your glory when we spend time with you and we give it to others through grace and peace. Thank you. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus. And all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. Verse 18. For the message, and that word in the Greek, if you're taking notes, circle it, underline it, or whatever you do in your Bible. Logos, right? You know that means the word, right? That's what that is. The message, you might see it as preaching in some of your translations. For the message, the logos... Of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? To those that are dying, right? Dying within their sin, dying within themselves. But to us who are being saved. Now, that's an interesting word in the Greek. We don't have a direct way in the English uh, to connote this. So we would say you, if I was putting something in, in the present tense or something that's happening, uh, be ye saved, or you are being, we put an I-N-G as a suffix, right, onto a word, you are being saved. But in the Greek, it can connote both. It can mean you have been saved and you are being saved in one way. And in the Greek construction, that's what we see here. Because we're, we don't have a way in the English to do that other than you've been saved and you're being saved, right? A conjunction, maybe an and or or, or something like that that we would use. But, but in the Greek, this is what it means. It's speaking, it says, It says, you who are being or been saved, and he says something here, it is the power of God. Circle that word power. 56 times in your New Testament, that word is used. That word is deutimus, right? We we talk about it in Acts chapter 2 when we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we talk about the power 
of God, right? Remember the epi, the coming upon you in the Greek? That's what it means. The baptism, not of water, but of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the spiritual gifts that you and I are given, equipped with for the service that he's called us, for the work of the ministry, right? But here specifically, he tells us, remember, the logos, the message of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are praying, but to us who are saved and or being saved, it is the power. And again, the closest thing we have, and it's our, where our word in the English derived dynamite, right? That Some people get that wrong and they say, well, see, this is where dynamite came from. No. No, the Greek word was established first. Deutimus existed far beyond before our word, uh, or obviously our English word dynamite existed. It was the closest thing that we in the English, with our understanding of the explosive nature of how dynamite works, it's the closest thing we could think of to say that is what we're talking about here. That explosive power of God. There's nothing else like it. You can't miss it. It's, it's not something you walk by and go, oh, that's just dynamite going off. It's right next to me. No, it's, you know, hunker down, close, you know, cover your ears. It's going off. You can't miss it. It's a power. And, and it's the same word he uses again for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a, it's think of the, you know, the, the picture because we get the baptizo there, that word in the Greek, that idea of, of oil, just pouring over you and running off you, that fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the anointing. That, that's what we see here, the promise of the Father. But, but specifically in this context, he's telling us the message, the word has that, right? We, we see that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who reject the salvation of the cross, right? The idea of being saved through the work of a crucified God-man. It's foolish to them. And, and if we're honest, and I pray we all are, at one point it was foolish to us, wasn't it? There was something we were wrestling with, and Paul's going to bring that out for us. What did we wrestle with? Because everyone's given a measure of faith, and as Romans chapter 1 and 2 tells us, conscience, our conscience bears witness. Creation bears witness. What was it we were fighting against? Our intellect, our flesh, our nature? Just think about that for a minute. Does it ever... Does it ever stop? Well, sin is dead to us, and we have victory, as Paul tells us in Romans. But do we ever stop battling? Is it a constant battle? Yeah. If you're walking it out in faith, hence why he says in Galatians 5.16, what? If you don't want to fulfill the lust of the flesh, you must walk. That's intentional, deliberate. That doesn't mean you could sit on your couch and it's just, yay. No, it means you have to get up and be intentional that you do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You must walk in the what? Spirit. You have to acknowledge there is a spirit, if you're a born-again believer, living inside of you. You are the very temple of God. This building we gather is a building. You are the saints in the body of Christ. We together make a church when the body of Christ meets. That's what there is to it. Because the spirit of each and every one of you is alive. And it's, I, I almost wish we could have that spiritual 2020 to see the Holy Spirit in our, and what's happening in our, as the word goes forward and the spirit of God inside us leaping for joy that his word is being proclaimed. And if you could see what's in the, the heavenlies that way, what you could see almost permeating around, it would be amazing. You know, I, where, where do they say? You go to Alaska and you see the, uh, the 
yeah, the lights and the, and I think that's got to be beautiful, but nothing compared to when you see the Spirit of God moving amongst his people. and Just nothing like it. And he says, to us being saved, the strange message, not strange to you and I, but to some, regarded as foolishness to those that are perishing. To those who trust in being saved, this message of the cross, he says it actually becomes the dunamos. It becomes the power of God. Do you see that in your scripture? It says that is what becomes the power of God to us. We, we learn here that this inherent power in the preaching of the true, true gospel is received when someone has humility and faith, right? It's what's happening. That happened in you and I. The hearing and trusting of the true gospel will bring the power of God into your life. Remember, he's just beginning here. What is he drawing them back to? To Jesus, to his word, John 1, 1. That's what he wants them to see. What are you guys doing? Do you think you've arrived? Do you guys all think that you get the entitlement and opinion to be able to create secretarianism? And I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. What are you doing? What are you arguing about? What division are you creating in your mind? He, he's, he's saying, did you forget who you are? You are blood-bought. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus. Let's start acting and conducting ourselves that way. A gentle way that Paul begins this in love and encouragement, though. For it is written, right? He, he goes here, he says, I will destroy, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. He says, I, the Old Testament, right? You, you, can't, you can't see it without seeing this. You gotta look at Isaiah because to Paul, this revelation was smacking him in the face. He was, he was literally, as he was penning this, the Lord goes, Isaiah 29, 14. I wrote it for such a time as this. And Paul's like, all right. Okay, Lord, I can do that. I understand. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Just think about that. Is, it, is that a new message? Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter one. Let's look at verse seven. Proverbs chapter one, let's look at verse seven. I, I, I love, don't you love when the Lord strings pearls and he brings these out for us? Proverbs chapter one, verse seven. I'll read it as you're turning there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What is knowledge? Understanding. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding, right? He begins the now what is the right application of knowledge? We call that something. Wisdom. That's the right application of knowledge, right? So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that knowledge that you need for right application in your life. And when you apply that correctly, what do you end up with? Wisdom. But, but there's an ingredient here. You need to have the fear of the Lord, Right? But look at what he says contrary to that. He says, but fools despise wisdom. Notice he says fools don't despise knowledge. Oh, fools like knowledge because knowledge puffs up. But when knowledge appropriately applied with the spirit, what does it do? What does it do? It creates godly wisdom. Do you see the difference here? Man's wisdom, God's wisdom, right? Man's knowledge, God's knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. No, it's... So what is the fear of the Lord? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Proverbs chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 13. 
Mark this down in your Bible if you ever want to know what is the fear of the Lord. He tells us very clearly in his word. He doesn't leave us guessing. Praise him. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Okay, check, right? Everybody hate evil in here? Good? Yep, check, not, not struggle? Okay. Pride, oh, wait a minute. Okay, arrogance, oh, thinking of something we ought not to, thinking higher of ourselves than we ought to, right? And the evil way, just in case we didn't get the idea of the hating evil, he wants us to make us, even the way of evil, no good, right? And the perverse mouth, I hate. Counsel is mine, sound wisdom is mine. He, and I love this, he says, I am understanding. Isn't that awesome? I have strength. Do you see that? Deutimus, power, strength by the word, by God. I am understanding. I love that. No, you want truth? Are people searching for truth today? I mean, you're traveling all around. You go to your jobs, you travel to your communities, you go on vacation. What's the one thing that everybody is looking for and willing to spend all their money on, right? They, they spend all, when they're young, they take all their money and, and they, we waste it, right? And, you know, you, you waste it on all these things that you want to buy that you think are going to make you happy. And then you, you, you get older and you've saved all the money that you didn't, you know, the less that you had left. Then what do you spend all your money on? Trying to be Young again, right? You spend all your money trying to, you know, these pills and these herbs and legal herbs, by the way, and these all these good things, you know, you're trying to do all that. You're going down this route to try to get it all back, right? The fountain of youth. And, and, he, and he says, look, he says, I, I appreciate all of that, but I am understanding. I am strength. And what I have for you, it's blood bought. You can't buy it with man's money. I've given it to you in my word. If you'll just humble yourself and believe. Know my word and know me. Right? That's what he says. You, you can turn back. So, so look, you know, when he's saying here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing of the uh, understanding of the prudent. What, what is he saying? What, what is he communicating? He's saying, I am understanding. I am wisdom. You can't find me through your intellect. You, you, you can't do it. You can't. It's foolishness, he says. He says, for, he even begins, for it is written, right? I mean, hmm. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Amen. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, did not know God. It pleased God, through the foolishness of the, of the message, preach to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greek, foolishness, right? We, we could go on, but let's, let's just take a few minutes on verses 19 through 21 here. For it is written, how do you know what God has for you in your life? Do you test everything in the light of scripture? Do you pray, God, give me a word? And then do you rest on that word? Once again, God gives us a demonstration of when he's speaking in our hearts, just as he did to Paul. This is a real life man, Paul, who received the word direct revelation from God as he was, he's a man. He's, he's, he's just a man. But through the Holy Spirit and through the inspiration, God gives him a word. And as he's writing this word down, God brings revelation to him of his word. 
And he then confirms it and gives him application and understanding. Oh, he said he would do that because he says, I am understanding. He directs him back to what? The Logos, the Word, John 1.1. Are you getting any? Are you seeing? Okay. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He tells us this is a spiritual matter. That's what he's saying here. God opposes the wisdom of man. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. What, what is this idea of verse 20 where he says, the disputer of this age, right? This was a man who wanted to dispute every issue and he wanted to solve it by human reason. That, that's what he's talking about here today. What do we call that? Intellectualism? We call it humanism? I think the point's plain. There's no wise man, as he said, no scribe, he says it right there, no debater who can do what Jesus Christ has already done. Amen? No one. I don't see anybody's name. I don't see, you know, Paul saved you. It's not Pastor Matt saved you. Jesus. Jesus. And, and God is not found through human wisdom. But we're told here, how is God found? Through the message of what? Through the cross. Isn't that contrary to what one would maybe think by worldly wisdom, that that's where Christ would be found? I mean, after all, when he came the first time, he, he came in love, mercy, and grace, and they were looking for a king that would overthrow Rome, as it was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. But they didn't expect the servant, even though it said that he would come as a servant, right? Isaiah. They weren't looking for the suffering servant. They weren't looking for the broken and humil, you know, humble God that would come born into to poverty, into nothing. He, he could have come in a palace or a temple. Even Moses, through his experience, his first half of his life or a quarter of his life, he lived in a, in a palace, very well-to-do, would have, would have, was taught the best philosophically and intellectually, only to walk away from all of it. Not, not, not intellect. God doesn't want us to walk away from our education or understanding. He just doesn't want us to, to, to raise it to a place of superiority to God's wisdom. See, that's where the rub begins. It's when we take what we understand and we actually sometimes, not all of us, but sometimes we have the capability to take and elevate that to above God's teaching, God's commandments and statutes. And we don't see that as idolatry. We don't see that as compromise. It is. It is idolatry. It is compromise. When we do something contrary or uh, against God's commandments and statutes, we are walking against the will of God. And it's not his design. And it's not what he put in us. And, it, and, it, and his Holy Spirit doesn't bear witness to that. And yet, as we'll read here in a little bit, we all do it. We've all done it. Maybe we didn't deliberately want to do it, but we did. Romans 3 united us all in sin. God wants to unite us all in Christ. That's what he wants to do in our sufferings, in our joy, in our righteousness, all in Christ. Remember, this is before he's actually gone and charged them with any specific sin other than sectarianism. And he hasn't even really said that's a sin yet. He's just drawing them back to who are you in Christ? How are you acting? How are you behaving? He says it's the message of the cost. You know, the, the pursuit of human wisdom may bring an earthly contentment for a while. Maybe. 
you know, maybe a happiness, but in itself, it can never truly give you the true knowledge of God. The only thing that can give you the true knowledge of God is the very book that's God breathed in your hands. This is unlike nothing else you have. Nothing else you have is, is like this. This is the word of the Lord. And it's thus saith God. The only thing that he lifts, lifts higher than his very name is what? His word. And if we, has this become common? Is this like a textbook? Has this become a manual that, 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 that we just admire? Or is it 66 love letters that God is specifically reaching down into individual lives to tell them how much he loves you, how he was willing to die for you, and how he can't wait to be with you for all of eternity because that is when everything is complete. And until that point, a part of his heart yearns for you and every breath you take and every hair on your head. He has numbered it, he knows you intimately, and he loves you like nothing else. And you are perfect in his eyes. And he sees you as his beloved children. And is the enemy trying to rob you of that joy? That joy in knowing who you are and that identity? And that's why he begins this with Corinth. Don't you forget who you are in Jesus. Don't you dare let that happen to you. Because that's what the devil wants to do. And that's what he tried to do 2,000 years ago. He did it 3,500 years ago, and he's doing it today. He's robbing people of the joy of Christ. He's dividing the body of Christ. He's having them chase off on all these other things instead of the unity of Jesus and drawing together, enjoying each other's, and I'll say it, sufferings and trials. Because we grow and we deepen through those circumstances. The true knowledge of the true God can only come by the wisdom of God, not by the intellect of humans. Now, I want to be careful here. Certainly, there's been many brilliant men that are Christians. I think of Isaac Newton. I think of Albert Einstein. If you allow me, I'd like to read you a quote here from a commentary concerning uh, Einstein that I had read, and I, I find it very apropos. I, I read this, and I... Uh, I, I chuckled in my heart because uh, I could see this. I could see, let, let the movie play for a minute in your mind here as I read this to you. Just picture Albert Einstein. He's in a classroom, okay? He's with his peers, some of the most brilliant minds of the world at that time. And they're all in there, and he's sitting there, and uh, I'll read the quote. One day, students in one of Albert Einstein's class were saying that they had decided that there was no God. Not a new attack, right? Not a new attack at all. The same thing under the sun. What are they trying to do? Disparage God, take away the glory from God. Well, I wonder who the source of this attack is, right? Sounds like the devil himself, the father of all lies, the book of John, right? So here he is, he's going through, and these men that are brilliant, right? They, they've declared it. This is what we believe. There is no God, okay? Now, you and I might want to debate that, right? We, and we should. We would want to say, well, wait a minute here. But, but watch what Einstein, Holy Spirit led, man. Just Holy Spirit. Einstein asked them how much of all the knowledge in the world they had amongst themselves collectively as a class. In other words, so, so all of you together, tell me how much you think you understand about everything you see in the world today. Everything. You know, we could even do this exercise here this morning. You know, if you all had to say how much you think you understand about all of the world today, I, I'm, I'm curious. Throw out a number, somebody. Anybody, throw out a number. What, 
30%? Uh, somebody, throw out a number. 5%, okay, 5%. You're going to be in good company. The students discussed it for a while, and they decided that they had 5% of all human knowledge amongst themselves. So as the most brilliant people in the world gathered together, and they were in this room, intellectualism, and, you know, the, the propellers are buzzing, and, you know, everything's moving, and, and you know, we're wrecked by the cartoons. The smokes are coming out of the ears. You know, they're, they're really, they're, they're, the horse power's moving. All right. They come together, and they say, you know what, 5%. 5%. Scans today that we use in medical science show that the human brain, as we understand it today, know as much as how much? From a medical community. 6%. That's what they say today, that they've mapped 6% of the brain. In other words, there's 94% of the brain that they still do not understand all of the capability of. Now, I'm not saying they haven't mapped the lobes. or we, Yes, but, but to truly understand the promise, if I can say it that way, utilizing that, what is possible with the human intellect, they believe there's roughly 94% percent that's still uncharted, if I can say it properly that way, at least last I had read. So you hear this, you're in the classroom, you're with Einstein, you're hearing this go around, he's talking about it. Now, what I think is funny is Einstein thought that their estimate was a little generous. How about that? At 5%, Einstein's like, really? Okay. All right. He thought that was generous. Okay. I won't say about what we thought at 5% here. He thought 5% was generous. So what does he answer? How does he turn around and respond? Because this is everything, right? It's the response. What does he say? Is it possible that God exists in the 95% that you don't know? Just think about the logic of that for a minute. The simplicity of that. That you claim to only know 5% and your whole logic and reasoning is based on what you can see or abstractly understand through empirical science or different ways of measuring or observational science. Everything that you go, nine, you know, 5% is what the best you can do. And therefore, you've ruled out God out of the 95% that you don't. We would call that a statistical anomaly, wouldn't we? That would be wrong, right? Anybody that would give you a confidence, CI, confidence interval of 5%, what would you do with that? You would laugh at them. You wouldn't even reason with them. You would, you'd laugh at them at 90%, to be honest with you. Anything under 95% really isn't accepted or adopted. And what are we talking about? 5%. So, that's where they come in. And it just made me reason or, or think to reason, what about an atheist? Do you understand the term atheism, what they claim to understand as well? It's, it's almost an Einstein moment, not that we're Einsteins, but, but his simplicity of argument. To claim to be an atheist or even agnostic means really that you have searched the entire universe and found no God. For you to use that term correctly, a negating theism, there is no God, right, in, in the Greek. You're just keeping it simple. If you can say there's no God, that means you've scoured the entire universe to verify there's no God. So that would precede me, humbly, to ask the next question, when did you go to the moon or the atmosphere or the galaxies around you, and when did you do that? Because I'm curious, and can I see your flight ticket? And, was, you know, obviously it was a round trip, so I'd, I'd like to see that. I don't think that's wrong for us to ask those questions because there are many that want us, through intellectualism and humanism, want us to feel stupid when we don't ask questions. 
Like, what do you mean you're asking me how I know what I know? Well, you made a very strong statement that I'm foolish for believing in the cross and Christ, but how do you know? I, I have the word of God. I, have, I even have prophecy, 27% of the Bible, that, that's happened, never been wrong. Historically, I can prove that. I have archaeology that I can come back, that even with our own uh, dating and science that we can prove, you know, we know that the city is there. It's still there. The walls are still there. We can use imaging to go underneath and see what's there. And it's just like the Bible says, because obviously the Bible's right and science is catching up. So, so I, help me understand then, right? That's not me being logical or pragmatic. That's simply, you know, I have a quandary. I, I need to understand. So Paul, I think, by bringing this out through God's wisdom, what is he trying to do? He's trying to draw everybody into the fact that you're trusting in what you see and understand. And from that, you've extrapolated that there is no God. How could you do that when you know so very little about God? Or you know so very little about the world around you, but yet you've made very broad sweeping statements very, you know, one of the worst things that families, you know, when, when they argue parents, marriages, one of the things I always try to uh, counsel is try not to either speak in generalities and not try not to use all inclusive say you always really every time, every moment, every second. No, it matters. But those words stick, right? Well, back, back to where we are here. I mean, so he's telling us right? What's going on? He's telling us the disputer of this age. We're, we're seeing that the message of the cross, the pursuit of human wisdom, it, it can't bring happiness. Einstein goes through and, you know, even through this quote is able to prove that we know so little about this universe. And yet there are so many people that have written off God. And it's, it's not God's wisdom for that. It's not even logical. It's not even statistically prevalent to, to, to make that kind of a, a theoretical stab in the dark. It's, it's actually negative. I mean, 5%, 95% unknown. It's not even pragmatic, right? Well, verse 21, he says the phrase foolishness of the message and foolishness of God, you know, if you read that, it, Paul's not saying that he actually considers this message uh, or God foolish. Please don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He's describing them as to those that are perishing, those that don't know Jesus, to those men that believe they're wise of this world, to them, they seem to think this is foolish. Paul's certainly not saying that. What, what God was saying is that to an unsaved man, he will look upon really God sending his only begotten son to die a slave's death on the cross as ignorant or illogical. That's, that's really what God's communicating through this. And that's because they themselves can't reconcile why would God do such a thing, right? In, in their worldly wisdom, they would exercise power and not humility. Do you see how they're juxtapositioned or opposed that way? You know, by the world standard, the person that wins, what, what do we call it? King of the mountain? You know, when we were kids and we had a little snow, I don't know, from New York, we had a lot of snow. So we'd have this little snow mountain and you'd get it to the top of the mountain and your job was to keep everybody off it. And you, as long as you could stay on top of that mountain, you were king of the mountain. And so whatever means necessary, right? Somebody come up there, you push them down, right? Or, you, you, you know, you 
I don't want to tell you what we did. The point is you push them down. You, you, they're, they're not getting to the top of mind. What did you exercise? Dominance. And Nicolaitan, he says he hates those. And power, right? Just saying, right? That's what you did. That's the world standard. That's the way the world handles and things and thinks about things. The world exercises muscle and dominance, strength, and some capacity to, to try to show their power. God says no. The way God shows power as he sends his only begotten son, a sovereign God. And he sends him to the cross on Calvary to die for you and I, a slave's death in humility. He came low as a poor man whose very life at the age of two was being threatened as a baby before he could even defend himself. I want you to think about that for a minute. The next time your flesh wants to say, you know what? Maybe we should say, you know what, Jesus, thank you. <laughs> I see it your way. I don't need to defend myself. You are my defense. You see, that's humility. That we're never closer to Christ until we experience Christ. How did he defeat sin? He lived a perfect life, right? He lived in, in humility. He, he allowed all of humanity's sin to be placed on his account to pay his sin debt in full to those who believe and receive his grace, right? He offered us salvation. You know, I, I want you to think about that. Every lie Think about sexual morality, rape, murder, stealing, divorce. Just fill in the blank with all the hurt and the lies and the difficulty. Just think about this for a minute. They're lies from the pit of hell. They're lies. They're lies to separate God's plan from our life. Now, I'm not saying if somebody here has had a divorce because of adultery and you didn't do anything to ask for that or abuse or something, you know, God condones in the world. I, I, this is not to, in any way, this is not to hurt anybody here that way that's experienced that loss and that difficulty. That's not what this is about. What I want you to see is that he's the father of lies. And if you think that he wasn't going to, if you think rather he's just going to come against Corinth and he's not going to come against, put, insert your surname, and family. He is. Your last name. He is. He doesn't care what he has to do to divide, to tear apart. We have to be wise, but gentle, as he said. Wise, but gentle, right? We have a lot to learn from the Lord and how he handles this. They would argue, back to our topic here, or our point, our verse, they would argue, it's, it's crazy. It's illogical. Why would anybody do that? And again, I think it has everything to do with the fact that you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, by, but only by what? Walking in the spirit of God. Galatians 5.16. That tells us we need to be intentional. And why would he do this though? And I think it's very clear that when you understand the difference between the character of God and the character of man, it can yield only one thing. And I began with it in our introduction. And what is that? It's his love. That's why God would send his only begotten son to die for you and I, for that act on Calvary, because he loves us. And, and it's hard for us to understand because many of us have had poor relationships in here with our fathers, maybe our mothers, with our brothers, our, maybe our wives, maybe our husbands, our children, grandchildren. And we struggle because the only relationships we've ever known are the ones we've been hurt by. How can that be God's love? 
Well, that's the difference between God and man. Man exercises power. God exercises love and humility. That's the character of God. That's why you can trust him. Because he's trustworthy. And he doesn't berate you into it. No, he died for you. He died for you so that you would receive him. He died for you to pay for a way. Who else would do that for you? Nobody else in this room. You may die for a loved one, but you're not going to give up eternity for a loved one in here. Only two people in my Bible, one actually did it. Three, if I count them all. I mean, Jesus, Moses, and who else? Paul. Paul, Jesus, and Moses. And only one of them did it. Jesus. That's real love. The very act of Calvary was a demonstration of love. They wanted a sign. We're going to read about that. The Jews and Greeks wanted a sign. They wanted a sign. What more sign can you... Neon, love. Right? Love. His hands are this way. Everybody come on in. I love you all. You're welcome. What more could he have done? I mean, how much more can you do when you do this? And you sh- Everybody. Your hands are open as far wide as you can. Come on in. It's love. It's always been love. True unconditional love without any selfishness. That's foreign to man apart from God, right? Truly in Christ, you know. Might seem too good to be true. If this is the first time you're hearing that, well, man, what are you waiting for? Today's the day of salvation. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Don't miss another minute. You've been walking contrary to to God's plan. Today, you can enter into God's plan. What are you waiting for? It's awesome to know you're in the perfect will of God and the joy of God. To know you're going to spend eternity with him. It doesn't mean every day is easy. I'm not going to pretend. But there's not a day where he'll leave you or forsake you. You know, what more, what more could you want? God's wisdom is not man's wisdom. And can I say it this way? Multiplied to the highest degree. Can I say it that way? Multiplied to the highest degree. It's a wisdom of a different order altogether. God said in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just think about that. Now again, Paul isn't condemning all learning or education. He's merely stating that by themselves, they are not useful for obtaining spiritual wisdom. That's what God's saying. The only learning that we're to do is through Holy Spirit in the word of God when it comes to a spiritual awakening because we've been given a measure of faith. There is no legalism that way that can draw you closer to Jesus. And in verse 21, God takes pleasure. Do you see that? It says that he had pleasure, right? For since the wisdom of God, the world, the wisdom did not know God. It pleased God. That means he took pleasure, right? Just think about that for a minute. In accomplishing our salvation in a way that no one had expected. He knew, but even all them around them didn't know. He three times told them in the gospels, I'm going to suffer, die, and I'll be resurrected. Three times. What do you mean, Jesus? He meant what he said, and he said what he meant. 
But in fairness, maybe we wouldn't have been able to understand that. He's the God of the universe. Why would he do something like that? The answer? Love. For without love, you have nothing. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block into the Greeks' foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, notice that, and the wisdom of God, there it is, both demonstrated, manifested through Jesus Christ, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The wisdom of God, the through the foolishness of the world, what's it saying? God wins. God triumphs, okay? Can I paraphrase for you? In Paul's day, the Jewish world was looking for a sign. Specifically, they wanted the sign of a a miraculous messianic deliverance. They weren't looking for the message of the cross. The Greek culture, what did they value? They pursued wisdom, intellectualism, Athens, right? Athens all over again. How did that work out? You know, some were saved, but Paul says at this point going forward, he's going in 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm going to preach Christ, Christ crucified, right? That was his message. You think of it in high or academic philosophical terms, but they didn't value wisdom expressed in the message of the cross. To them, it was, it was foolishness. It was foreign. They, they couldn't reconcile it. Why, why would God do this, as, as I've already you know, sort of mentioned? They rejected God's wisdom, and that was the heart of the issue. They believed they knew more than God by either willingly ignoring his existence or believing humanity can do it better. Isn't that what we see today? Is it, has it changed? Has it changed in thousands of years? Has it changed since 5,000, 6,000 years ago? Is there anybody, I'm going to ask it this way in the inverse. Is there anybody here this morning that has not had an original thought that maybe, just maybe, they might know something more, now you would never say it this way, than God, but maybe your hunch or your gut or any other anatomy is, is telling you this is what you think, feel, right, or believe. We trust our emotions an awful lot, don't we? We trust our emotions a lot. You think, you see, I think that's the, the issue, not, not just the emotions, but... The rejecting of God's wisdom is a heart issue. We, we can't fix it through the intellect. That's the point. You, you, you can't argue. So I can persuade someone into Christ, but somebody else can easily persuade them away from Christ if it's, if it's an emotional, persuasive, with eloquent words. But if it's a true transformation of the heart, only God can water that seed, take hold of that, seal that heart, give the, what? The guarantee which is the Holy Spirit that now lives in that person, and he who lives you is greater than he who lives in the world. Therefore, nothing can come by and steal from that man's house because there's a watchman in that house. Speaking of the body, just think about that for a minute, how even God designed sanctification after salvation, knowing that nothing could pluck you out of his hand because he knew there would be an enemy that would try every single moment through lies. And, and most, many people that don't believe, they, they believe it to be an argument of intellect. Well, you need to prove it to me. And, and we can. There's a lot of factual information. It's actually not terribly hard to prove it to somebody logically. It, it's not. The problem is, who are we drawing them to when we do that? Our wisdom and our intellect. 
instead of the gospel. Look at the cross. Do you know anybody else who would do that for you? No. Okay, so we have something unique there. All right. So, so religion teaches you this, but relation expresses this. What do you want? You know, you're all wrecked by that capital one. Come on, what's in your wallet? We're all wrecked by that. You know, what's in your heart? Amen? What's in your heart? Are you chasing a religion of man? Because you'll always be striving. It's going to wear you down. It's going to wear you out. And do you want to know the real Jesus? The Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus that went to the cross, the Jesus that always existed and informed you in your mother's womb. He made you perfect the way he designed you. You may be thinking, you don't, know, not, you don't know me. I'm pretty flawed. Yeah, you don't know me. I'm pretty flawed too, man. But it's God who sees us with the righteousness of his son. So instead of him giving exactly what the Jews and Greeks demanded in deliverance to wisdom, God gave him something unexpected. What did he give him? A crucified Messiah. I love that. That's the answer. From the pulpit, he says, we preach Christ crucified. That's what we do here. We preach Christ crucified. From those chairs, what do you preach? Christ crucified. There is no other message. There is no other message as you read in your scripture unto salvation. And in verse 25, he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God was at his most, if, if you want to use the world term, his most foolish when he was at Calvary. He was the weakest when he was on the cross. Do you remember the, the, the rabbis and the scribes? Hey, what, Jesus, if you are, if, show us a sign. You take yourself off the cross. Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? That all these other people, they'd be dead in their sins. No, I came to save and to set captives free. I didn't come to save my own life. I came to lose my life for all of humanity so that they would know once and for all, I love you unconditionally. That's the gospel. Salvation is not accomplished through human wisdom. We must never forget the results of what we see through that dramatic expression of love on Calvary. We can never forget it. Look at verses 26 through 31, and this is what we'll close today. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble are called. Notice that's in italics. That was added by the translators for readability. Please circle that so you don't, we, we'll talk about are the call, but people get caught up in that. But, but what is he really saying in verse 26? None of you arrived. Well, we'll talk more about that. It's like, thanks, Paul. Thanks for just laying that out for Corinth. But God has chosen. We could have put Calvary Chapel Harrisburg right in there. Or, you know, I mean, my, Pastor Matt right in there. I mean, it's perfect. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. That God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Look at these three things. And righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Three specific things he tells us. And it is written, and as it is written, excuse me, he who glorifies, let him glory in the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24 there. So let's, let's sort of close with this here. We'll go through a couple of uh, points as we exegete each scripture. Verse 26, you see your calling, brethren. Paul tells the Corinthians, look at yourselves. You haven't arrived. 
Not many are wise, not many are mighty, right? Not many are noble. What's that mean? It means well-to-do. You were born with, um, some people might say today, a silver spoon in your mouth. Or it's, it's what he was connoting back then. You were not born that way among the Christians at Corinth. He says, no. He says, no, you're actually the foolish things. This, this should be my life verse. <laughs> I mean, I'm being honest with you. It should be my life verse. I mean, I, I read this and it's so true. It's like, when we, remember he was putting Apollo, Cephas, I pray to God none of you take Pastor Matt or Pastor Bill or any, any of the, and put us in a position where you look to us like Jesus. We're not Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the pastor of this church. He's the shepherd, right? I mean, we're, we're simply his under rowers, hence the name under rower. We're in the bottom of the boat, man. They won't even let me on the top of the boat where you guys are. I'm on the bottom of the boat where I belong right? But what do we see here? He says, don't forget your calling. You haven't arrived. Don't forget who you are. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul said in Romans chapter seven. Remember that? Oh, wretched man that I am. Before he took his eyes and put them on God, he had his eyes on himself and that's what he saw inside. That's who I am. Oh, wretched man. But if that was the end of the story, I'd, I'd be done. I wouldn't want to go on, but it's not the end of the story. It's not how Christ sees us. Even though that's who I am. That's not who Jesus sees me. That's not who he sees you and, and I that way. No, he takes pleasure in using the foolish things. I'm that foolish thing. Next time, you can even write it in your Bible where it says foolish thing. Pastor Matt, right there. Pastor Matt. Foolish thing of the world. And yet God has chosen the foolish things of this world. I, I think First uh, John chapter 4, verse 19, when he says, you know, I loved you first so that you would know love, so that you could love me. I was so foolish, I didn't even know how to do that right. I didn't even know how to love God until God told me how to love, you know, how to love him. I didn't even know how to do that. For Paul to write this, there's no doubt in my heart, many of the Christian Corinth were beginning to think of themselves maybe more mighty or more higher than they ought to. Maybe in terms like this pride and what have you. We read about that in Proverbs 8 where they began to think of themselves prideful or they began to think of themselves arrogantly. We saw that, not hating evil. But you know what they weren't thinking about? They weren't thinking about the way and the terms in which God sees each and every one of them. They were so busy looking at their differences that they weren't seeing their commonality. They were so busy focusing on what was wrong they didn't enjoy what was right the righteousness of God, Jesus. I, I have no other conclusion. Why else would he have written this this way? Paul wasn't going to allow this. Pastor Paul was not going to allow this. I certainly am not going to allow it here either. If Paul didn't allow it, I'm not going to allow it as an under shepherd. We, we, we are not to tear each other down. We're not to rumor or backbite. We're not to turn around and make up lies or stories. We're not, to, we're not to try to compare each other with another person and somehow, uh, you know, look at that, oh, they're better than me. No, Christ crucified. It's Jesus. We ought to be looking at Jesus. More time on Jesus. When you're spending so much time looking at another person, I'm going to tell you, get your eyes on Jesus. And you know what? You love me. You say you love me. You tell me that too. If I ever get my eyes off it, you tell, get your eyes on Jesus. Amen. Nobody's arrived, Right? We're no different. We're nobody's arrived. We don't need to pretend. 
That's real love. That's real love here. I mean, (laughs) they hadn't been chosen because they were great. They were chosen because of God's love. That's why they were chosen. I want every one of you to think about that for a minute. You're you're a born-again believer in Christ because Jesus loves you. Not because of how great you are, how gifted and special your gifting is. (laughs) Well, you all are gifted because God has a plan for you and he equips where he leads. Absolutely true. The way Jesus looks at you is a son and daughter. Perfect in his eyes. No shame, no fault. He doesn't look upon your sin and say you blew it or you failed. He just looks at you and says, I love you. I am so proud of you. I taught you how to love and you're doing your best. And I know, I know you love me and I see you and I see the righteousness of my son Jesus upon you and I see the grace and the peace that's flowing. That's me. He says, you smell like me. You have a heavenly fragrance to you. He says, my fingerprints are all over you. When I look at you with that heavenly neon light, man, all I see is the spiritual fingerprints of God over each and every one of your hearts. Because I knit it, I put it together, I planned it, I called you, I formed everything. There is no coincidence. You are doing and you are where I've placed you and the people in your life The woman that you love, I placed her in your life. The man that you love, I placed her in your life. And do you trust God's best? Because he says, I foreordained it before even the beginning of time. I foreordained it. There's no coincidence in who you're with right now. But I want it this way. Good. We appreciate your opinion. There's a box outside. We all have opinions. But last I checked, my opinion leads to a fourth, or, no, I didn't say second, a fourth or fifth best. I want God's very best. And when I honor his word and I do it God's way and I don't rely on man's wisdom and I rely on God's wisdom, I trust that God is working in my life for the good. And even if something's not happening at the speed that I want it to happen, or if I'm waiting on something, or if I'm waiting for a healing, or I'm, you know, I am trusting God is moving. He's still on the throne, friends. He's still on the throne. It hasn't changed. He's the ancient of days. He didn't write you off. Listen for that still small voice. And why does he do all this? Why does he use a knucklehead like me or or, or just, you know, inadequate people like us? Verse 27, to put to shame the wise for his glory, because he can. God loves to rebuke idolatry. And how does he do it? He rebukes the idolatry of human wisdom. And he often does it by choosing the foolish or the humble things of this world. Hence why I'm standing up here in front of you. Because you cannot in any way look at me and go, wow. Praise God. Thanks for all agreeing. You're all like, yes, that is very true. I'm like, okay. because any No any sense I had of any. No, I'm joking. The reality is you can't do any of that. You glory in God or you glorify God because it's his word. See how beautiful that is? That's, that's what it looks like when it's in scripture and it's done right. 
It's just you look at the guy and you're like, eh, I love you, Jesus. I love you. Look what you've done to put to shame the wise, right? God is saying that the world's wisdom and education doesn't bring us the salvation in Jesus. Again, that's the whole point. And the end result should be somewhat obvious, right? That, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And, and I don't want you to think this is a false pride that I stand up here and that I really think differently. I, I don't want, for one second, I, I don't. I, I really believe this for all of us. I really believe this is what Paul is telling us. That if we want to overcome division and, and, and distraction and everything else, we need to get over ourselves. We need to get out of the way. Like we, we just need to come to the terms and just say, you meant when you said, when you said die to yourself, literally, like lay it down. I've got nothing good to offer God. It's what everything, it was the best gift. He offered me salvation. The only thing I could ever offer him was a life. And oh, by the way, I didn't create it. God did. Just think about that. You can't outgive God. He's God. The end result is obvious. That, that what? No flesh should glory in his presence. God's ways are greater, higher, and nothing in the flesh will glory in his presence. He's designed it that way. He's God, right? And he deserves that. It's beautiful. He protected us from pride. He protected us from pride. Look at verse 30. Jesus, who became for us wisdom. You see, Jesus perfectly showed us, not, not just in his teachings, but in his life. He demonstrated God's wisdom. True wisdom isn't about getting smart. You, you've heard people say that. I want to get smart. God's wisdom is received in and through the person of Jesus. Do you have Jesus in your heart? Who is Jesus to you? Do you read the word of God? And do you see Jesus in every verse, passage, every jot and tittle? Is it all Jesus? That's what I see in my word. It's all I see. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he's not only wisdom. What else is he for us? And this is, this is where we're going to close here. This is what it, it ties it all together. He's righteousness. Remember the three things? He's sanctification. And he's redemption. Do you see that? He communicates, he's these three things to us, right? Who are in Christ Jesus. What is righteousness? That's, this means that we're legally declared, it's a legal term, right? Not guilty, just like justified. But only different in that it tells us we also have a positive righteousness to our account. That in our account, right, where we would be found wanting, he has deposited his righteousness in our account. And we have a positive balance. And oh, by the way, it never runs empty. You can't be without righteousness if walking in Christ. And he sees you with that positive righteousness. That's the word of the Lord. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I believe him as Lord and Savior, but I deny the fact that he gave me righteousness. God's word just said he did. And if he sees you as right living and righteous, that's who you are. Like I said, it's an identity crisis that the world's under today. Why do you think the, the biggest attacks is coming through sexual orientation to try to divide people by, or divide people by what? By identity. Am I a he, a she, a pronoun, a they, a we, or whatever? Why else? It's nothing new. It's just being manifested differently today. But it's the same attack over and over again. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Same over and over again. Nothing new under the sun. We're wise to it, low. 
We're spiritually not blind. We see. There's a whole world that doesn't see. We need to help them see. It's not about your sexual orientation as identity. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. You were created by him, and he desires you to be a child of God. Receive him now as your Lord and Savior, and enter into the fold that you were always designed to be in, that your purpose in life may be fulfilled as God has orchestrated it. Amen, amen, amen. That's the gospel. Right? And so he says righteousness, right? It, it means that the righteous deeds and character of Jesus are accounted us. We don't become righteous by focusing on ourselves because Jesus became that for us. Doing that and practicing legalism or trying to keep a ceremonial law or anything else, you know what you're doing? You're committing blasphemy and you're putting Jesus back on that cross. That's what you're doing. You're putting Jesus back on the cross because his sacrifice wasn't good enough the first time. God forbid that's blasphemy. That's not. Sanctification, the second thing he tells us, right? That speaks of our behavior and how the believers are to be separate from the world and unto God. We don't grow in sanctification. Who, who sanctifies us? Jesus, as we just read, it says he does, he does it, which means he does the work in us. Can we finish the sanctification process? No, we are but partakers. We as vessels can go, okay, here I am. You know, do it, Lord. Have at it, right? But, but we, it's only through our willing heart, but he does the work, right? Jesus became for us sanctification. It's beautiful. What about redemption? That's the third one. It's, it's a word. You know where it comes from? From slave trading. It's a word that, that derives from slave trading. And the idea is that we have been purchased to a permanent freedom. We're blood bought. And because we're blood bought, it's permanent. Jesus' blood was not in vain. It is a permanent transaction. The spiritual transaction that took on the cross. It's permanent. We are blood bought. And through this redemption, we've been purchased to a permanent freedom. A permanent freedom in Christ. We don't, we don't find our freedom by focusing on somebody else. Apollo, Cephas, you know, anything like that. Paul. Our freedom is in Jesus. And what's the whole point? Look at verse 31. And this is what the devil's been trying to do since Isaiah 14 and describes how he would be like the God most high. What is he trying to do? Steal the glory from God. And this is the whole point. Look here in your, look at your passage here. This is it. If you don't understand this, you're not going to, you're going to miss it. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. In no way are we to ever touch the glory of God. In no way are we to do anything but to bring glory to God. Paul uses the reference in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 to show that God did it all his way so that God would get the glory. Now, what is the glory of God? Remember I asked you what the fear of God was? What is the glory of God? Anybody? It's the beauty of his spirit. Right? It, it comes from the very character and being of God. It, they're inseparable. Glory and God. You can't separate them. And what are we? We're his vessels. Didn't he say that? We just read it. We're blood bought. We're permanently his, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 7. What's it say that we do? <laughs> this just wrecked me. What's it say that we do as vessels of the living God? Just by your very being, a believer in Christ, receiving the Lord and Savior, your Lord and Savior, Jesus, you take and point others to his glory. You're not only disciples and reproducers, 
but you're glory makers for Jesus. Because last I checked, unless you're spending time with Jesus and you walk away from him, the glory begins to do what? Fall away. You want an example of that in the Old Testament? Look at Moses. When he was in the Shekinah glory of God, the Father, right, on the mountain, boom, he had to cover himself, right? But that covering wasn't because his face was messed up. I don't know how else to say it. It's a technical term. He turned around, right, and he, he did what? He came down, and it says that his glory began to dissipate. And he didn't want everybody else to see it. We read that also in the New Testament. So we manifest his glory by spending time with him and being, by belie- being believers, and we bring glory back to his holy name. That's why we're reproducers. Healthy sheep reproduce. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Go ahead and read uh, the rest of chapter 2 um, and 3 for next week just so you can stay a little bit ahead. We're taking our time through this because it's, it's very, very important. Uh, if we lose, I think it's important, one, as disciples, I think it's important that we understand how we ought to behave and how we begin to be on the lookout for these things that can begin in our heart, these ideas and these thoughts that seem to just kind of come at us from left field. I can assure you that there's an intention there. You have an enemy, and that's not coincidence. And anything he can do to distract you or move you away from God's design and God's joy, what God has for you, he wants to. Because he doesn't want you to revel in God's beauty and his, his mystery and his love for you. He wants, he, God wants you to enjoy him, to, to worship him. He doesn't want you to ever take it for granted. And the devil wants you to do everything to, to take your eyes and place them back on you and not look to God because he's jealous. Because he's jealous. Because he wanted to be worshiped. Look, a created being doesn't get to choose those things. You can want to be a wrench if you're a hammer, but you're always going to be a hammer if that's how you were created. And you have a divine purpose for that. You can try to turn things as a hammer. It's not going to work so well. You're going to be going against the the norm of what your life is designed for. Really pay attention to that in your lives. What has God called you to and made you for? He's knit you perfectly. There is no coincidence. Be encouraged by that. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your holy word just sets us straight. Lord, there is no confusion about, uh, you know, do you love us, Lord? As Paul just, through your Holy Spirit, just echoed over and over again, Jesus became our wisdom. God is all understanding. God is all wisdom. And Lord, we certainly yield our, ourselves to you right now. Lord, we don't understand anything. You understand everything. You are precious and holy. God, we pray, God, you would, you would give us your wisdom that we would walk after you here this morning and every day of our lives, Lord, and, and that we would draw others to you as those vessels, Lord, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that we would be those vessels to bring and draw people to your glory, that you in your name would be manifested on high. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And Lord, as we walk out of here, our, our heads are held high because there is no identity crisis in the church, not in this church. We know by your word, we are the sons and daughters of our living God. And because of you, we walk in that righteousness. We walk in that sanctification. And Lord, we possess that redemption. Thank you, Jesus, 
for the eternal gift you've given us that we already partake today. We praise you and we glorify you. We pray all this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed, amen. And as I said to first service before we go, I know I kept you a little long. I want you, some of you may never have heard this and I want you to hear this. Wherever you are in your lives and your family, listen, I love you. I mean that with everything that I am. I love you and I love you. And if you don't get to hear that from anybody else, I want you to know you're under shepherd, you're passionate. He loves you. I love you. God bless you all.